If you're interested in ways to naturally boost your testosterone, then this episode of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show is for you. Welcome to the Smart Nutrition Made Simple Show, where each week you'll hear the real-world experiences, life lessons, and guided principles that every highly driven man needs to master, their health, productivity, and relationships by sharing conversations with the world's most successful people in fitness, nutrition, supplementation, and mindset. Meet your host, Benjamin Brown. He is a fitness and nutrition expert, consultant to Fortune 500 companies and world championship sports teams, a husband and father of three, and has been helping men transform their physiques, optimize their energy, and own their fatherly mission since 2005. Thank you for joining us today, and without further ado, let's jump right in. Today in the show, I interview Dr. Ralph Esposito. Dr. Esposito is a naturopathic physician, an acupuncturist, and a functional medicine practitioner specializing in integrative urology, men's health, and hormonal health. In addition to being a peer reviewer for medical journals, he has authored several medical textbook chapters and has designed educational modules for health professionals specifically on urological conditions, male and female hormone dysfunction, hypogonadism, exercise, men's health, and sexual dysfunction. Dr. Esposito has trained at NYU Integrative and Functional Urology Center and also holds a position as an adjunct professor at New York University where he lectures on integrative medicine. Currently, Dr. Esposito serves as a medical consultant and research analyst. In this episode, we talk about the wide range of testosterone levels as we see in conventional medicine, why that's potentially an issue, what the things are that contribute to low testosterone levels, and why it may not be a good idea to simply use testosterone replacement therapy when diagnosed with low testosterone based on conventional labs. We talk about the HPG axis and the relationship of the adrenal glands, the thyroid, and the brain to testosterone production. And then we also cover some concepts around intermittent fasting, how intermittent fasting can affect thyroid and testosterone production, and then some really useful nutrition and lifestyle tips that you can implement immediately that are going to help you manage your overall stress load and ultimately improve your body's natural production of testosterone. I hope you guys enjoy this episode, and uh, I'll catch you on the other side. All right, Dr. Ralph Esposito, how you doing, brother? I'm doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Really excited to be here. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on the Smart Nutrition Made Simple show. You came highly recommended, and so I'm happy that we finally made this happen. What's, uh, what's going on in your world right now? Oh man. So what is going on in my world? I'm in New York city. What is not going on in my world? Um, I am probably the most passionate person that I have met in terms of understanding hormones and, uh, and basically anything that happens into the hormonal system and mostly in men, but I, people always make the assumption that I can't, you know, if you understand, if you do men's health, you don't understand female hormones, but I just think that's it's impossible to know both. You have to understand both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I am, I work as a medical consultant and a research analyst. So when you say what is going on in my world, it's, it's whatever's in the research, man, like whatever new things are coming out, people are talking about keto and fasting and testosterone replacement. There's a bunch of things going on. So we can talk about all of them and, and none of them if you want. Yeah. Well, we'll definitely jump into some of those areas, but why don't we preface that? Um, maybe you could give us just a really brief background of how you got into, um, I'll call it holistic men's health, integrative men's health. You can, yeah. if you want to call it something different, by all means, enlighten us, but maybe just give us a little bit of that journey. Sure. So I um, started getting involved in men's health when I was maybe in my second or third year at NYU. I was in, uh, that's where I did my undergrad work. My bachelor's is in nutrition and dietetics. And I thought I was going to become a dietitian. I was like, okay, I love nutrition and I love food. And this is, you know, I want to make food as medicine. Mm-hmm. And then I started realizing that that is not typically how dietitians work in the clinical setting. Uh, it's more of food management or taking orders in terms of macros from physicians. And I said, okay, well then I'll just go get my PhD. 
And then people are like, well, you're not going to be able to practice. Like, you know, not, that's not clinical. Right. So uh, I knew prior to that I wanted to go into naturopathic medicine. And I said, okay, well, I'll just do the RD first and then I'll go do naturopathic medicine. And then, again, people kept on guiding me like, that's not going to be the best use of your time. So I reached out to, I just basically, I was in one of my classes, I was getting frustrated with everything that was going on. And I Googled um, naturopathic physician uh, NYU. I said, well, if I'm here, why not see if there's other people who want to do what I do that are here in, in sure. New York and at NYU. And I found my mentor um, who became also one of my best friends. And he, Dr. Gio Espinoza. Sure. I emailed him and he said, I said, I don't want anything from you. I don't want treatment. I don't like, I just want to learn. I want to like know what you do. And he brought me in. He's like, I guess we kind of clicked. And he's like, well, why don't you do research with me? Why don't we start analyzing papers? Why don't we start doing some publishing? Why don't we start writing some chapters? And I was there for six to seven years, even through med school. I was doing it all out of just a learning experience and ended up becoming infatuated with everything men's health related. So anything urology related, actually. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at prostate cancer, uh, enlarged prostate, prostate pain, testicular pain, interstitial cystitis, low testosterone, sexual dysfunction. And I just became infatuated with it. And I'm type, I'm the type of person where um, I will become uh, pretty much in fact, I, I kind of just dive deep in, go down the rabbit hole and I want to know everything about it. Yeah. And that's a good thing. And then a bad thing, because the bad thing is it takes me forever to figure something out, like specifically great thing that we get to talk about it here and you get to learn everything that I know. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I, I appreciate you taking all of the time studying and researching all of that stuff so that all of our listeners and myself included can benefit from, from your expertise because it's definitely in an area that is very needed right now to the degree that it's my experience that we're seeing a massive rise of the issues associated with male hormones. And so... Um, what I'll say is that we're seeing a decline in androgens for males, or we're seeing uh, what could be conveyed as a, a decline in overall testosterone production for men and testosterone just being one of those androgens. But it's the one, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it's the one that we're paying the most attention to right now, whether it's justified or not. With that said, what have you observed over the past several years in your career, both doing your research during med school and post-med school as a clinical practitioner, what are you observing as, as trends in, with respect to those male hormones? So a lot of conversation that I have with people is, and even other physicians who unfortunately don't understand this, is um, the difference between normal range and an optimal range, right? So when you get a blood work done, blood work done either Quest, LabCorp, whatever lab it is, right? And they get and they get a testosterone level. They give you a range, and usually the range is three hundred to sometimes a thousand, sometimes right. twelve hundred. That range has um, significantly changed over the past few decades. So, 10, 15 years ago, three hundred was considered low, right? And now it's considered normal, right? Mm -hmm. So what I try to explain to people is, is the, what they do is they take the average of a bunch of men who have testosterone levels, and then they find the average, right? They find, and that's called the, that's zero, right? Or that's the media, uh, the mean, and then yeah. do a deviation, right? Two standard deviations up, two standard deviations down. And they say, okay, well, if the average is 700, then 300 to a thousand must be, you know, the range of normal. Mm -hmm. And that range has significantly expanded. So they started increasing it, slowly increasing it. And that's because male hormones, specifically testosterone, has been decreasing over the past few decades. So that's one thing that I'm noticing. The other thing is estrogen levels. The estrogen ranges are also increasing. So now the optimal level is usually below 30. And now it's the average is, uh, or the upper limit of normal is 60. So I believe it's picograms per milliliter. Uh, and so that range has increased. So now men are, their testosterone may be lower, their estrogen may be higher. And then how is this manifesting? Well, uh, more than ever, we're seeing more men with sexual dysfunction and hypogonadism. And 
probably because I'm in this field, I see it in men as young as 18. Um, actually, I had one patient who was 16. Mm. He was a junior in high school, and he was already experiencing sexual dysfunction. Um, and I don't think he was sexually active, but he was telling me that he just could not get an erection if he was around the girl or if they were in a situation where he typically would or should, yeah. right? So those are the ba- major three things that I'm noticing uh, is that these it's clinically showing in men with lower testosterone and, and they're showing it with sexual dysfunction, which is unfortunate. And, and so if I'm, if I'm concerned about my testosterone levels, maybe if I'm, I'm having a hard time getting an erection or keeping an erection, um, or maybe it's just my energy levels are low, my sleep's poor, and it's been suggested to me, and it, it's kind of becoming conventional knowledge that, hey, you should go, you know, you're a middle-aged guy, you should go have your testosterone checked out, make sure it's in the normal range. So if I go to the doctor and I get a, a testo- my testosterone checked, and it comes up in the normal range, why, could I st- why would I potentially still be concerned um, for example, if I'm at 300 or 350 mm-hmm. versus if I'm at 750. Right. So I think the question that what you're asking is, even if my, if I'm not showing symptoms, but my levels are low, should I be concerned? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is a great question that the endocrine society has argues all the time. And their answer is, so I'm going to give you what the science says, and I'm going to give you what I think. The science or the experts, right, say if they have low testosterone or low free testosterone and they're showing symptoms, then it's considered hypogonadism. And, And just to be clear, when you say low testosterone, are we talking low below conventional norms? So below 300? Yes. Okay. Yeah. They don't even acknowledge the fact that 300 as well. Right? right, but that's such a massive range between 300 and 1,000. It's like two different worlds. Right. It's like, here, take a ping pong ball and throw it in a pool and try to get it in the pool. Right. Yeah, you're going to get it. It's going right. to reach the pool, right? Obviously. So or your chances of that are very high. So the endocrine society says that those are the rules to follow. Now, I agree with them some part. And I would say if a man has mediocre testosterone levels, let's say 700, and they're not showing symptoms of low testosterone, then I'll say, okay, we're okay with that. Even if you're at like 500, I would say, okay, you're still showing, not showing symptoms, but that doesn't mean I shouldn't do anything, but that doesn't mean that you need testosterone replacement. But you have to look at free testosterone levels, right? So you have to, because that's what's bioactive. So you have to look at your free testosterone levels to understand what it's actually doing at a cellular level, right? And I kind of make this like, just to give you a little bit of an analogy, um, testosterone travels to the blood using a hormone called sex hormone binding globulin, SHBG. And let's just call that, let's call the testosterone, you know, like two people walking down the street, holding hands and SHBG is one person. And then testosterone is the other one. Then you, one person says, okay, go ahead and go ahead and knock on that door. Right. If, if free testosterone is bound, I mean, total testosterone bound to that person who's holding the hand, it's going to be really hard for, for you to go knock on that door if the other person doesn't want to do it, right? Mm-hmm. So you need to detach and that uh, unbind the hands and then go mm-hmm. ahead and knock on the door. That's how you get the end. The door is like your cells, right? It's your okay. DNA. And that's how testosterone, free testosterone turns on activation, okay? So you can have low total testosterone. But if your free testosterone mm. is at the middle or higher range, then there really isn't much to say about that because that's what's active. And that's a good thing. I wouldn't, gotcha. I wouldn't say we need to act on that. But let's say you're not showing symptoms. Your free testosterone is low. Your total testosterone is low. Testosterone is essential for preventing Alzheimer's, preventing dementia, improving bone density. So preventing osteoporosis, preventing sarcopenia, which is, called, which is uh, muscle wasting. So the things that people mostly die from these days are typically cancer, heart disease, Alzheimer's, and then like a musculoskeletal, like falls or accidents, right? I mean, how many times do you hear somebody who's older and they hurt their hip, they fall, they break their hip. And that's typically for, for muscle and bone fragility. And testosterone is essential for that. So too low testosterone levels um, would pre- prevent that prevention. So 
Um, and then cardiovascular, um, which is a poorly misunderstood in, in, from clinicians. They think giving somebody testosterone will increase their risk of, of heart disease. And, and in fact, that's, that's not the case and can be preventive in, in many aspects. So uh, I would say, yes, we need to act on those levels because look at all those other things. Like you, you can't feel Alzheimer's. You can't feel right. a heart attack. Um, you can't feel cancer and you can't feel low bone density, right? I mean, right. you can feel low muscle density, but that's typically as you get older. So if you can't feel them, then I need to assess them somehow and let's be preventive in our approach. So assuming total testosterone and or free testosterone levels are low, is simply having low levels an excuse or a reason to start utilizing testosterone replacement therapy? No. So, and that, that's the thing. So just because your levels are low doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go ahead and start testosterone replacement. You know, it's, again, I try to use analogies to make things simple. If, you're, if your oil is low in your car, yeah, you could put more oil, top it off. Mm -hmm. If there's a leak somewhere, right. you're just going to go right back down there, right? You need to identify the cause. So testosterone or low testosterone or scientifically called hypogonadism is um, defined in many different aspects. We call it primary, secondary, or tertiary. So primary means your testicles can't make testosterone. So that's a primary cause. There's many reasons why that can happen. Mm -hmm. Secondary means that you're part of the, one, a gland in your brain called the pituitary is not telling your body to make or telling your testes to make testosterone. So that's secondary. And then tertiary, which is the hardest to identify, is when the hypothalamus, which is your part of your brain, is unable to tell your pituitary to make the things to tell your body to make more testosterone. Okay. Mm -hmm. And now there's different approaches in correcting each one of those. So now if your testes aren't making testosterone, it doesn't matter um, if, if you try any other lifestyle issues or lifestyle interventions, those are really going to be really hard to correct unless you correct the reason why you're having low uh, your testes are not functioning properly. And sometimes what I typically see is heavy metals. Uh, Interesting. Lead and environmental toxins typically will cause damage to the, to the testes and inhibit the ability for them to make testosterone. Now, if it's secondary where your brain or secondary or tertiary where your brain is not communicating, then we call that an um, HPG access dysfunction or hypothalamic pituitary gonadal dysfunction. Just call it HPG mm -hmm. for, um, actually let's, I'm sure a lot of your listeners have heard of adrenal fatigue. Yeah. Well, that was going to be, I was going to segue into that. So I'm glad that you brought that up. Let's talk a little bit about those, um, stress pathways and how they can impact, uh, to, you know, testosterone production, thyroid, uh, right. function, things like that. Yeah. Everything is connected. And unfortunately, and I've seen this firsthand, many physicians, holistic, integrative, conventional. They just yes. don't understand the intricacies of it, right? Yes. And the thyroid, your gonads, so your testes, your adrenal glands, everything is connected. One typically cannot be optimal without the other. Now, they can function, they could be adequate, but in order for them to be superb, right, they need some type of communication. Well, if your adrenal glands are dysfunctioning, then that could be a sign that there's a HPA access dysfunction, hypothalamic pituitary adrenal access dysfunction. And that can also have an impact on your testosterone because your adrenal glands make the precursors to make testosterone. Right. If you don't have enough raw material, how are you going to make the final product? Yes. Then, then you look at the thyroid. Well, what does the thyroid have to do with testosterone? Well, thyroid is your metabolism. It is, it's, it's a messenger system in the body to tell every single cell in the body, hey, you need to do this, you need to do that. It tells your, your uh, women's ovaries, you need to make proper progesterone and estrogen. Thyroid hormone will re respond back to your thyroid and tell your thyroid to make certain things like thyroid hormone or thyroid releasing hormone, right? And then it tells your testes, it binds your receptors in the testes and says, hey, you need to be active and start making testosterone now. So if your adrenal glands are not making the precursor and your testes are not getting the message from your thyroid to 
uh, run the engine. And then your brain is then not telling your testes to make testosterone. Some, something has to go. Something is not working properly there. So you have to figure out exactly where you are in there in that aspect, like what is the issue, right. and then address that, and then typically things will correct. Now, I bet a lot of your listeners right now are like, oh, man, I want to do this now. Like, let's fix my thyroid. Let's fix my adrenal. Like, all gung-ho. Right. It takes time right so you didn't get sick overnight or you right. didn't have dysfunction overnight and don't expect it to recover overnight i had a um a colleague tell me well how long is it going to take how long is it going to take for this guy to get better it's like an impossible question like how could i answer that like yes. well, how long was he sick what is the actual cause yeah how, what is the approach you're going to take are you going to go very aggressive are you going to go very slow does he have heavy metals like it's so it's such a difficult question to answer and then it puts me in a tough position because i'm like uh, man, you're supposed to be the expert, Ralph. Like you should know exactly how long it takes. And I could tell you with medications how long it takes. Sure. But, but from if you have to address sleep, diet, lifestyle, exercise, supplementation, it's not so simple. I'm glad you brought that up. And especially in our quick fix, you know, magic bullet society, we want things to happen overnight. But the reality is that, you know, in, in all likelihood, we've been beating ourselves down for quite some time to the degree that finally, we're at a point where we may just be expressing symptoms and becoming cognizant of the issue. And right. uh, you got to unwind the clock a little bit. And, and, and like you said, it takes time. So I am uh, a little concerned about you know, I, I went to the doctor. I'm a little concerned about my testosterone levels. I'm, I'm understanding now that it's more than just band-aiding the situation with taking TRT and understanding that, okay, th this is deeper seated. This has to do with, uh, as you said, HPG, axis dysfunction. Right. Um, we can get into gut health a little bit. Um, oh but, but there's multiple reasons uh, that things are the way they are, that my testosterone is being expressed the way it is. Let's talk a little bit about those diet and lifestyle considerations as to how they affect that whole system um, mm -hmm. and ultimately the testosterone production. Diet and lifestyle. It's <laughs> very general and deep. So basically all of my training has been on lifestyle medicine diet and lifestyle so okay so eight years how can i summarize the eight years of training you can't but let's just focus on the big needle movers here in terms okay. of like look everyone's busy but we'll just you know say quote unquote busy moms and dads listening we're all stressed out we all suffer from uh poor sleep hygiene mm -hmm. um, no one's diet is is where it should be what are the things that you're seeing consistently that are the biggest drivers of this hormone suppression that we're experiencing in this day and age? Number one, and I've said this on many podcasts before and it has become, I should just get this tattooed on my forehead, <laughs> sleep over everything. Yeah. It's so simple, but sleep is essential to recover. Your hormones are controlled by your brain. Right. So we don't make that connection. It's, it's a, it's, it's typically, it's literally a mind body connection. Right? right. And when you sleep, number one, you're recovering. So you're uh, allowing your body to repair. Uh, when you sleep, you get rid of a lot of the bad cells that typically are not effective. It's mm -hmm. called uh, autophagy. But most importantly in sleep, you go through something called slow wave sleep or deep sleep. So um, I use a device that helps me identify uh, where my sleep is. So it's something called an aura ring. Yeah, I have uh, one. You do. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. And I use that uh, every night to assess how my sleep is. Right. And deep sleep, slow wave sleep is when you release the most FSH, LH and growth hormone. So if that's one thing that you want to make sure is right, is you want to make sure your deep sleep is right. Because that's where all the hormonal action is occurring. And then also your, your adrenal glands, they need to repair and recover. And they can repair when they're not being stimulated and that should be happening overnight. So if you do some testing and you find that that cortisol levels are really high overnight or melatonin levels are really low overnight, or you're seeing issues in your circadian rhythm, your cortisol diurnal rhythm, then you can try to fix that with sleep. Yeah. Sleep number one. Uh, number two is... Uh, people always tell me, oh, I eat well. 
Well, rel- well is relative. And I just I was just speaking with a, a, f- a family friend last night. And he's like, oh, well, I, I eat really well. And he's like, but I, uh, I gained 20 pounds and I lost 20 pounds, but I kept, uh, I lost muscle mass. I didn't lose body fat. Sure. And I said, well, that's not good. Right. right. You want to maintain muscle mass. And uh, he's like, well, I eat well. I said, okay, well, what's like, well, I'll have oatmeal with a banana in the morning. And then I'll have an English muffin with egg and cheese. And I'm like, okay, you're not eating well. Like that is not what I would consider well. Now that's, again, it's relative. Like it depends who you ask. Some people would tell me like, if you eat meat, you're eating unwell. Some people would tell me if you eat soy, you're eating unwell. What I would say is eating unwell. And I don't think anybody can disagree with this. And if there anybody that does, I'd like just pubmed it really is um, sugar. Sugar and uh, hyperinsulinemia are probably going to be, and hyperinsulinemia is when, when blood sugar gets really high and insulin levels get really high. Yeah. But what does that do? That drives inflammation. It increases uh, pro-inflammatory hormones. It increases pro-inflammatory um, markers like eicosanoids and interleukins. And it um, activates aromatase enzyme, which is the enzyme that converts your testosterone to estrogen. So it's a perfect storm. You're not sleeping and because, and then you're tired. So in order to get a boost of energy, you're drinking coffee with your sugar, right? Right. Now you have the perfect storm for an inflammatory profile. And then over time that creates damage to the body. And that's why people are aging quicker. And that's why they don't feel well. And it's really hard to correct. Like, it's not like, okay, stop eating that sleep. Well, like everything gets corrected because it has a trickle down effect. And then it has other uh, downsides down the line. So those are the two things I would say, Fix those two things and you're probably going to be, you know, 50% better. Hey brother, are you struggling to find the energy to function at your best as a businessman, father, and husband? I want you to know you're not alone. And sadly, the conventional wisdom these days around healthy eating and exercise that has saturated the mainstream is flat out wrong. If you want to find the solution to optimizing your energy and body composition without restrictive dieting, soul-crushing workouts, or adding more to your already stressful and overflowing schedule so that you can finally function like the man you know you can be, then we need to chat. Are you ready to move from exhausted to energized by working smarter, not harder? Go ahead and schedule your free strategy call at www bslnutrition.com forward slash level up. I'm looking forward to our conversation and enjoy the rest of the show. I want to get a little more clarification on sleep, but improve the quality and quantity of your sleep most likely, and then uh, stabilize your blood sugar and insulin levels through better quality food by minimizing your sugar intake. And I'm sure it's just sugar and refined carbohydrates, which most people are over consuming in, in our American population anyways. With respect to this, the sleep real quick, have you found, because I, I find it's hard to tell people to sleep more, while mm-hmm. it may be necessary, what are some things that we're doing to improve the quality of the sleep so that people can get more of that slow wave sleep? So that's a really good question. And I'm glad you brought that up because anybody can tell you sleep more, like you need to sleep better. Right. It's like when doctors tell you like, oh, well, it's stress. Right. Well, which, well, which one is it? Because my dog just got sick. It's because I found out that my loans are doubling because my, somebody hit my car or because, you know, I busted my ankle, right? Like what stressor are you talking about? Um, so in order to improve sleep, it's not just about quantity. It's about quality, right? So a few easy things to follow. Number one, uh, wake up at the same time every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's more important about waking up at the same time, less so going, well, I mean, it's also important to go to bed at the same time, but if you're going to try to correct one, just make sure you're waking up at the same time and then slowly try to get into bed at an earlier time, which means if you typically get to bed at midnight and you wake up at six, don't try to wake up at seven o'clock the day after to get an extra hour, go to bed at 11 o'clock yeah. right, to get that extra hour. So that's number one. Don't eat close to bedtime. Um, and it's funny because when I was in, um, uh, med school, everybody was, you know, that was like standard, like, yeah, obviously you shouldn't eat before going to bed. I also have, uh, my master's in traditional Chinese medicine. So I'm at, I'm an acupuncturist as well. And that's a, I mean, that's a 
a rule in Chinese medicine, like do not eat before bed because that is when the body, you know, in terms of uh, organs not functioning optimally and that's when you should be resting. And now we have science saying, yeah, people who eat later in the day or eat their late, their meal later, um, eat their meal, like a heavier evening meal time, they don't sleep as well and they mm-hmm. have more sleep, a slow wave sleep and they actually uh, feel more sluggish waking up. So two things, don't eat late. Uh, at least three hours before bed, and um, oh geez, what was the first one? Oh, wake up uh, at the same time. Okay. Yeah, wake up at the same time. That's really those are really good tips. Yeah. Um, especially what I find myself repeating over and over is just pushing the clock back a little bit earlier at night yeah. because, like, I mean, nothing good happens after right <laughs> nine or ten p.m. I mean, what are you doing? Well, maybe if you're having sex, but um, which is important. Which is important, however, yeah, I mean, that's fine, but, you know, how long is that going to take, you know? Um, uh, <laughs> in which case, you ask. Yeah, right? And, but, but pushing that clock back because, right, if you're not having sex and you're watching TV or you're putzing around or you're in the lights or you're playing on your computer or your phone and all of those things are going to impact the quality of sleep anyways. So I appreciate you sharing those. You mentioned something earlier about autophagy. And some of the things that we're hearing in the nutrition field with respect to intermittent fasting, prolonged fasting, and its relationship on uh, on autophagy and uh, cell, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, dead cell clear out. Maybe you could just explain real quick what autophagy is, but also are we seeing a correlation to uh, autophagy and testosterone production or testosterone and intermittent fasting. Have you seen anything around those areas? I love talking about fasting. It's, it's actually, I'm so happy you asked that because, Sweet. Oh, it's a great topic. Yes, and let's jump in real quick. Um, actually in early October, do you know Dr. Carrie Jones? I know her name. I, I don't know that I've, um, she's the medical director of Dutch. Of oh, okay. Got Dutch it. Laboratories. Um, a very good friend and an amazing physician. So, uh, her and I, we presented at a conference in New York and it was on, um, sexual dysfunction. And, uh, in my presentation there, I told her, I said, I'm going to rock the boat a little bit. Actually funny because it was a talk on sexual dysfunction, no pun intended, but I said, I'm going to, I'm going to ruffle some feathers. I'm going to say, I'm going to tell people that maybe fasting is not the best thing for them. Okay. And what we have found is um, when you fast, and we're talking about prolonged fasting, and we've seen this in uh, people who've done like three-day fasts, four-day fasts. Okay. It's the quickest way to turn off your thyroid synthesis and your hormone production. It's probably one of the quickest ways to do that. And they did a lot of these studies in um, men who practice, uh, who are um, Muslim and practice Ramadan fasting, right? And that's a great population to study because they do it for a month and they typically do it from sunrise to sunset. And that plus or minus can be 10 hours of fasting, right? Uh, and in the studies, they found that it was typically around 12 to 14 hours of fasting, which would not be much, you know, considering most people do a 16 hour fasting window. So ju- just to clarify, so you said prolonged fasting and, and you said three to four days, but it's not, it's not, you're not referring to three to four days of, of eating nothing. You're referring to three to four days of, of intermittent fasting in a row, just to be clear. So I'm talking about both. Okay. I'm talking about both. So it's clear fasting, like water fasting, no food, clearly, like inarguably turns off uh, thyroid hormone and reduces uh, FSH and LH in terms of testosterone production, right? Okay. But intermittent fasting, and what they have found is that doing it continuously on a daily basis for 30 days at least, because that's what these Ramadan studies were for, were okay. from, will reduce testosterone levels and may increase cortisol levels. And so that's if we, if, let's say we're practicing traditional, uh, you know, uh, let's just say 16-8 intermittent mm-hmm. fasting, where we fast from 8 p.m. until 12 noon the next day. We eat nothing, just drink water or black right. coffee or something that's no calories. So doing that consistent, which a lot of people do, yep. doing that consistently will shut down thyroid production. In some people, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it wow, can. That's that. fascinating. Yeah, it's a, and what they found was is um, this happened typically towards the end of the fast. 
So mm. these men who were practicing Ramadan fasting, typically I, I believe the day was like 21 or 23. So towards the end of the fast, the, the, the later part of the, so basically, you know, the first two weeks they seemed okay. And by week three, they started showing some uh, signs and symptoms of low testosterone. Uh, that is when it started happening. So that tells me, well, these guys were starting to be, their body was starting to be taxed and the body was recognizing we're not getting a lot of food here. Yeah. There's really no reason for us to ramp up metabolism. So that was one, that was, uh, there's several studies that do show that in terms of Ramadan fasting. And then, um, and one other study, which was, it's a great study. It's a, they had athletes, uh, I think it was CrossFit athletes, and they fasted 16-8, so 16 hours of fasting, 8 hours eating, and they clinically showed that their testosterone levels decreased um, while they were doing the 16-8 intermittent fasting daily while training. But interestingly, they didn't decrease muscle mass, which was... And how long was the, the study for? How long were they in, in practicing the fasting? I believe it was six weeks, but um, I would have to double check on that. And And... Are you seeing, have you seen anything on like a 24 hour fast one day a week or have you read anything? So there's every other day fasting, which, and they have seen that in mice. They haven't, um, I I have to pull the research. Um, I have about like eight different sources and I'll send them to you if you like. Um, If I recall correctly, most of that was on animals, on mice, where they would, because it's easy to fast mice for five days or you know, for, yeah. for every other day. And so there's a difference between um, intermittent fasting and time-restricted feeding. So right. when people say intermittent fasting, what they really mean is time-restricted feeding typically because time-restricted feeding is 16A or, yeah. you know, 18-6, uh, right? Or 24, 20 yeah. hours eat, uh, fasting, four hours eating. Uh, that's time-restricted feeding. Intermittent fasting includes the 16A time-restricted feeding, but also includes... Um, every other day fasting and includes mm-hmm. two days of not eating and then five days of eating normally. So, so when people say, well, intermittent fasting, the que- my next question is, is which one? Right? Yeah. It's, it's somewhat nebulous. Right. So I would, I would assume that the two days of not eating would probably be, and it seems like day three is when things start getting really bad. Um, in terms of hormonal production. And I would say, you know, not eating for a whole day, typically would not have any negative effect on hormonal levels. But, but, but to, add, to address your first part of the question was autophagy, right? When does that happen? And, and yes, there is some research showing that um, autophagy may be uh, enhanced by fasting. Right. right? And that's, that makes sense. Autophagy is uh, which exactly what it sounds like, autophagy, which means the body, so auto means self, and phagy means eat. And it's when the body starts eating itself. Now, um, there that's different from breaking down body fat right because that's like that's lipolysis right so it's not like you're losing body fat what it really is is um kind of think of pac-man going on inside your cells right Mm -hmm. and the little pellets that pac-man is eating are little organelles in the bod in the cell that and i'm sure if your listeners can go back to like high school biology you have like the nucleus and the mitochondria and the vacuoles and the plasmic reticulum. And those things, they make proteins. And when those are dysfunctioning, the body has to do something to correct it. So it it doesn't kill the whole cell. It's not apoptosis. It's not killing the whole cell. It's just taking parts of it and saying, hey, this is crap. Let's clean it. It's house house cleaning or spring cleaning for the cell, but typically occurs on a daily basis. And fastening may upregulate that. Uh, The unfortunate thing is that we don't have a way to measure it. That's a really good analogy. Um, I appreciate you sharing that. And, and it makes me wonder about these intermittent fasting studies. It makes me wonder about, especially with uh, Ramadan, it makes me wonder about how many total calories they're eating in their feeding window. It makes me wonder about what their protein intake is during their feeding window. And, you know, especially then if you, if you compare that to the CrossFit athlete study, you know, in all likelihood they're consuming, and you said they, there was no muscle mass lost. They're probably right. in all likelihood consuming a lot more protein, specifically animal proteins. Um, I think there's, yeah, that's, that's fascinating. Um, I'm, I wish we could measure it. That's good stuff. Yeah. Personally, I've been, I've been practicing one 24 hour fast per week 
um, just kind of playing around as a means to just kind of regulate total caloric intake throughout the week right. and just kind of seeing how it feels. I'm, I'm only a few weeks in, so I'm not really sure. I don't really have any objective to uh, measures other than um, with fasting in general, the more you do it, the more comfortable you get with it, which I think is a double-edged sword. Yeah. Yeah. And I would um, advise your listeners if they do want to experiment with it. Um, number one, try not to just do this by yourself because you, I think you do need guidance in doing this properly um, unless you're very well experienced and don't push the, you know, don't push the pedal too hard mm-hmm. because if you fast too much and I actually am guilty of this, I was fasting uh, usually 18, 20 hours would go work out and I would yeah. kill the workout and then I would be spent. Yeah. And I did that for weeks. And then one of my best friends uh, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, she was like, dude, you need to chill out and like eat a little bit more. And I'm grateful that she did that because I was just so engulfed in the research. I'm like, no, the research shows this is good. The yeah. research is excellent. And she's like, but what do you feel? And I was like, oh yeah, good question. Right. So yeah. just pay attention to that. No, a hundred percent. And I think we have the tendency and this just parlays perfectly into talking about hormone production, optimal hormones, specifically testosterone production is putting the pedal to the metal, especially when we're talking about, you know, we, we just all have these busy, active, nonstop lifestyles of stimulus and stress. Um, and understanding that more is not always better. And, and and it's, you know, you mentioned stressors, the doctor saying, well, it's just stress related. Well, where is the stress coming from? It, maybe right. it's coming from you crushing yourself in the gym every single day, especially yep. when you've already been fasting for 16 hours and you've yep. got nothing in your system. And so I, I do think taking all of the things that we just talked about um, and people really trying to listen to their body, stop trying to rationalize what someone is telling you to do even even us here on on the show you need to be very analytical and do your own homework and experiment you know on your own and listen to what your body's telling you are you go 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 all the time because if you are you've got to find that that balance um so maybe so maybe real quick you could just talk to you know overstimulation and how more isn't always better if you have any insight into some of those things. Yeah. I love talking about that aspect of it as well, because um, what your listeners need to really understand is the way the nervous system works. And that's why I say, you know, you can do this on your own, but um, it's really hard to tailor if you don't have somebody who understands the ins and outs of human physiology. And you, you may, but um, and look at me, I, I know a lot of stuff and I still needed somebody to say, hey, yeah. wake up, right? Uh, and the reason why the go, go, go or the push is, can be overwhelming and can be a stressor is because of the autonomic nervous system, right? Something called the parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system. So the sympathetic nervous system is your fight or flight and your parasympathetic is your rest and digest. So um, many of your, listener, of your listeners can probably relate if you are having a meal and then you get a really, uh, you know, bad news phone call, you kind of lose your appetite, right? Or you'll eat and then feel worse after, right? And that's because you're putting your sympathetic sympathetic uh, system into overdrive and you're not able to digest your food. You're not able to uh, relax your intestines, right? But that works on a, on a deeper level uh, because it impacts your whole body. So, uh, the one nerve is called the vagal nerve, um, not to be cute, confused with vagus, right? It's the vagal nerve, cranial nerve 10, and that controls most of the parasympathetic action in your body. So your rest, your relaxation, and well, when are we doing that most? When we're sleeping, right? And when we're eating. And uh, epinephrine, uh, and just putting this into, um, I, I like to look at evolutionary biology because it's probably the earliest the most unadulterated form of study that we can use because that's kind of before we had a lot of other variables in our life. And uh, evolutionarily speaking, we were in fight or flight a few hours of the day, maybe max. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. 
And how much are we in fight or flight now? Well, you wake up, you check your email, you see all the bad news you got. Okay, crap. Let me go get some coffee because I'm exhausted. Okay, more sympathetic drive. Okay, I'm going to go to the gym to work off this energy. Okay, Mm -hmm. go to the gym, more sympathetic drive. Then I come home. All right, let me handle these emails. Still in sympathetic overdrive. Things get handled. Things go away. And then four hours later, somebody else is yelling in your ear. You have to go deal with some other stuff, right? So you're always in sympathetic drive. And we don't have enough parasympathetic uh, in, our, in our lives. Well, so what can you do to, to correct that? Meditation is hands down probably one of the most essential tools that people can use. Uh, it's free. Mm-hmm. It doesn't require you to go take a course. I mean, some people like to do transcendental meditation, and that's fine if you want to do that. Um, but you don't have to but it has been one of the more researched aspects of meditation. Um, And then how can you measure that? Well, you look at your heart rate variability and heart rate variability tells you how much your heart rate varies, the lows and the highs. And it tells you how well your nervous system is capable of adapting to different stressors. So when your heart rate is very high, how easy is it? And that could be sympathetic how quickly and how easy is it for your body to take that high heart rate and bring it down? And the more your the higher your heart rate variability, the more able you are of um, putting yourself into a parasympathetic response yeah. and kind of dulling the stressors. So uh, you want to look at heart variability and the tools that you can do that are, you know, meditation, exercise, but not too much. Walking is great. You know, a lot of people don't walk very much. It's like, okay, let me take the car to go here. I live in New York City, so I can walk everywhere. Uh, but then there's cars honking and uh, police cars all over. So take it for what it's worth. And I, I would I would try to have people identify those stressors. And most people don't realize like, oh man, I am stressed. Yeah, you're stressed. Um, yeah. And you don't identify because you've become numb to it. I, I speak to a lot of my colleagues who are my best friends. I'm like, you're overworking yourself. Oh, but I don't feel stress. I eat well. I sleep well. I exercise. I meditate. I said, okay, you probably become numb to it. You need to correct that and identify it. And once you become aware of it, it becomes much easier to address. Yeah. Those are all phenomenal tools. And I, I like that you brought up the HRV, the heart rate variability. It's something that I found really fascinating with using the aura ring. Yeah. Um, for those of you listening that aren't familiar with it, the aura ring is basically a, it's a, it's a ring that has, uh, essentially a computer in it that links up with an app on your phone and it tracks mm-hmm. your uh, heart rate when you're sleeping. It tracks the quality of your sleep in terms of your REM sleep, your deep sleep, your total sleep time, tracks kind of your physical activity, the amount of movement throughout the day um, and times when you're actually resting throughout the day and through all that data, it's just col- you know collecting all of this data that's really useful to take a look at it and just see what sort of patterns you're in. And for me, it's been beneficial to take what I'm seeing through the ring data and correlate it to how I'm feeling mm-hmm. on a daily basis to the degree that I know now when my heart rate variability is low, when it's a day where I may have a hard training day on the schedule, but I know based on just the quality of my sleep and how I'm feeling that it's not going to be a good day to train hard. And then other conversely, other days when I know I've gotten a great night's sleep, I know my deep sleep has been uh, long and proficient. And it's a day when I can beat myself up you know, pretty good in the gym and, and know that I'm going to recover appropriately. So I think that uh, those are very valuable tools. We can really use science to our benefit and use some of these objective measures to our benefit um, to help us gain better awareness around what's going on in our day-to-day life. What are we doing consistently with our sleep, with our nutrition, with our, our lifestyle that's potentially impacting Uh, positively or negatively the hormones that we're producing on a daily basis and and specifically you know with regard to this conversation that the male hormones like our testosterone and understanding that hey at the end of the day simply having a low testosterone isn't in and of itself a reason um, to uh, just jump on testosterone replacement therapy but rather You know, of course, consulting with your physician first and foremost, getting some optimal blood work done, and then really taking an a, a, a objective and subjective look at all of the things that you're doing that could be contributing to those, those testosterone levels and to why you may be feeling the way that you're feeling. So uh, with that said, Dr. Ralph Esposito, buddy, 
It's been awesome <laughs> chatting with you. Um, I so really known you forever, man, dude. I, I <laughs> love talking about this stuff. I, um, you know, I will have to do it again at some point, but I just, I'm so appreciative of you taking time out of your busy schedule. Um, you know, as we're talking about further, you've got a full load of clientele of, of clinical research that you've got going on on a daily basis. Um, so I can't, uh, as much as I'd like to, I can't refer patients to you, but, um, where can people at least find out more about you and follow along with what you're up to? Yeah. So, uh, my goal is really to just educate and give people the information uh, that they need to do better on their own because I can't help a million people. If you reach out to me, the answer is no. So, but I want to give uh, as much education to other people so that they can help more people. So the best way to find me would be uh, social media. So uh, either my website, drralphesposito.com or um, at dr.ralphesposito on Instagram and the same thing on Twitter. So I'm always posting on those places and it's really just getting good information out to people. Uh, and I also uh, am a um, professor at NYU. I do that um, part-time and I love that. Like that is so much fun because I'm speaking to master students and like we can geek out together. And I just, I want to geek out with everybody who's in the social media world. So, and especially you, like this is fun for me. Yeah. So um, yeah, that's where people can find me and any information. And if people want to know more about a certain topic, like let me know because you know, I only research the stuff that I come across and I read and I become interested in. Uh, and I'm sure there's a lot of other things that people want to know. So throw in my way. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you sharing the love and, and I'm just trying to do this game by, you know, interviewing experts like you just standing on the shoulders of giants. And uh, so for all those, you, uh, those of you listening, make sure you head over, follow uh, Dr. Esposito on uh, Instagram and uh, we will do this again, buddy. Appreciate you. Oh, anytime. Thanks for having me. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Did you love this episode of the Smart Nutrition Made Simple show? Then head on over to iTunes, subscribe, and leave a positive rating and review. And more importantly, share this with other men that you know are dedicated to leveling up in every area of their life by learning how to live healthier, more energetic, and productive lives so that they can optimize their health for their family and future. Thank you for listening. And if you want to find out more about how you can work directly with Ben, then just head on over to www.bslnutrition.com forward slash level up.